everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we and have Mr. with Peace. us, a, and I'm Mr. Peace. We have <laughs> with us another amazing guest today, and that is Masterpiece Mormon Ron Jorgensen. How are you today? Doing wonderful. Oh, you know, I, I feel that I need to describe you to our listeners because we do have a lot of people that only access us through audio podcast. Although I feel like when Ron's on, you might want to just take a peek over on YouTube at Mormonish Podcast just to see because Ron looks like he's right out of a page from the game Clue. He's in a library, in a high-backed lounge chair, wearing a robe with a cravat and smoking a pipe. I am not making this up, listeners. This is Ron. So <laughs> this, is, this is a smoking jacket, not a robe. Oh. So I'm so sorry that I said bathrobe. It's a smoking jacket. <laughs> smoking jacket. <laughs> so, so much correct. more sophisticated to be a smoking jacket than a bathrobe. <laughs> one's a pervert, one's an academic. On <laughs> and that's a fine line here on Mormonish Podcast. That's exactly right. So no, we have the wonderful Ron here because we're going to delve into a really, really interesting topic. And we ever, whenever we have something, you know, that's a deep dive into history, we always want to bring Ron on because he's just, he's brilliant and he knows everything and we love to talk to him. So I think maybe a lot of you, um, if you didn't hear it, actually, you became aware of a, a talk in conference given by, now remind me who it was that gave it, was it Christofferson? I now I can't was. remember that's so funny. I, I can't remember who gave it. I think it was, it yeah. We'll have to look it up. We've got to be absolutely correct here on Mormonish Podcast. Um, anyway, it was a talk where they mentioned B.H. Roberts. And of course, most of us know B.H. Roberts from a particular more well-known incident in his life. But in this case, um, his story that we were not very familiar with was brought up as an example of overcoming division is how they described it. So basically somebody that was at odds with leadership and was able to reconcile that in his heart and return um, to so that he felt okay about the situation. So um, I think I'm just going to go ahead and read this passage from the talk. Did you look it up, Landon? It is Christofferson, we... yes. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, Ignore right. all of that, me being unsure. It was Christofferson. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, B.H. Roberts was a member of the presidency of the 70s um, in the early church. So uh, the story starts out, and this is the one that was read in conference in April. Um, in 1895, Elder Roberts' service in the church was put in jeopardy by contention. B.H. had had been appointed as a delegate to the convention that drafted a constitution for Utah when it became a state. Afterwards, he decided to become a candidate for the United States Congress, but did not seek notify or seek permission from the first presidency. President Joseph F. Smith, a counselor in the first presidency, censured B.H. for that failure in a general priesthood meeting. Elder Roberts lost the election and felt his defeat was due in large part to President Smith's statements. You think? <laughs> he was critical of church leaders in some political speeches and interviews. He withdrew from active church service in a lengthy meeting in the Salt Lake Temple with members of the First Presidency and Council of the Twelve. B.H. remained adamant in justifying himself. Later, President Woodruff gave Elder Roberts three weeks to reconsider his position. If he remained unrepentant, they would release him from the seventy. In a subsequent private meeting with Apostles Heber J. Grant and Francis Lyman, B.H. was initially unyielding, but love 
and the Holy Spirit ultimately prevailed. Tears came to his eyes. The two apostles were able to respond to certain perceived slights and offenses, perceived, of course, uh, <laughs> that troubled B.H., and they left with a heartfelt plea for reconciliation. The next morning, after lengthy prayer, Elder Roberts sent a note to Elder Grant and Lyman that he was prepared to reunite with, reunite with the brethren. When he later met with the First Presidency, Elder Roberts said, I went to the Lord and received light and instruction through his spirit to submit to the authority of God. Motivated by his love of God, B.H. Roberts remained a faithful and able church leader to the end of his life. So this was the story that was told in conference um, to show how it is possible to have a disagreement, maybe even be angry at your leaders, maybe even speak out publicly um, about your leaders, yet to eventually understand that the right thing to do is to reconcile and to concede and come back. So we were super intrigued by, by that story. Of course, uh, there is a little bit more to that story, Landon. Why don't you talk about that just for a second? And then we'll talk about how this feeds into what our topic is tonight. Sure. When I when I heard the story in conference, I was like, oh, my gosh, they're throwing B.H. Roberts under the bus. B.H. Um, uh, Roberts has gained quite a bit of notoriety recently because uh, a, a book was released. It's called Studies of the Book of Mormon uh, that have some of the papers that he wrote. He wrote to, uh, he kept a lot of papers. He was an intellectual. He was one of the great intellectuals and one of the times of the intellectuals of the church. You know, this is Talmadge. Uh, it's the 30s when they were looking at science was really becoming important, and he was a intellectual, and he could talk with intellectuals. Uh, so I really have a lot of admiration for B.H. Roberts because he really was one of these people who tried to reason through things, and he also uh, would stick to his guns when he found something that that he believed he would stick with it. And so I had read the book on, on uh, the studies of, book, of the Book of Mormon. And so I knew about B.H. Roberts and I knew the history of B.H. Roberts. And I'm going, what's this story about the politics here? That isn't one that I knew. It, so most people know B.H. Roberts from the fact that he uh, was, a, was asked to, by the first presidency, they got a series of questions that were asked to him. Uh, three main questions about the Book of Mormon. Uh, one was about language, and there were, there, there were three main questions that they put to him, and they said, we want you to respond to this, to this question. So B.H. Roberts went and did the study on it, and he came back and he said, gentlemen, we have a problem. The questions that they are asking are problematic. There is the languages of the, of the Americas are at least 12,000 years old. And he started going through all the problems. And in the end, uh, the, the brethren just said, well, we bear testimony that the Book of Mormon is true and, you know, the standard thing. And B.H. Roberts said, no, 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 no. You asked me to answer the man's questions. I can't answer the questions. You are the prophets and the apostles. You need to help me come up with an answer to this. And he wouldn't let it go. He, he called and said, you guys have to come back. We have to get an answer. They came back the next day, and he went again and said, there are not answers to these questions. And they all bore their testimonies again to him. And they basically said, can you give an answer that would satisfy uh, this man? And he basically said, I can give an answer that would satisfy most men, but I can't give an answer that would satisfy a thinking man. 
Um, and so, uh, what a great answer. Yeah. Yeah. And they told him, well, go ahead and give that answer then, uh, and put it out. And so he ended up doing that and he was known for, there was kind of a big power struggle between him and Joseph Fielding Smith, uh, Fielding or F, uh, I think it was Fielding. Um, but remember the F, but I can never remember which one comes first. Ron, which one comes first? Which one was it? (laughs) Joseph F. Smith was the first one. He was the he was the father. They're both okay. actually named Joseph Fielding Smith. One is Joseph Fielding Smith Jr. Yeah, it okay. was. It would have been Joseph F. in the 30s, I think. So right. he Joseph was F. Smith I, died in eight, 1918. No, uh, yeah. So would have. Oh, okay. Well, it was uh, then. It would have been Fielding pro- probably that that they yeah. had the power struggle between. And because this uh, was years after the manifesto that we're going to talk about tonight, the manifesto. Yes, this was years later. So yeah, and so they already knew he was hard headed because of what had happened in 1895. (laughs) Yes, yes, they already knew that. And Smith was very much uh, uh, a strict believer in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, and that we had to believe it. He was a young Earth, you know, six thousand year old Earth. Whereas B. A. Roberts was very scientific, and he said, "No, the Earth is much older than that." That he was very uh, the evolution was was being proven right, and he said that you know the, these things aren't adding up. So Roberts wanted more science in the church. Smith was going, no way, you're way off base. Well, the Smith family name and the fact that he was senior, he was an apostle. Roberts basically, after his defense and saying, you know, we we owe these people an answer, they said, thank you, B. H. Uh, we're going to send you on a mission <laughs> and you get to pick wherever you want to go. We'll let you pick, but we're getting you the hell out of Salt Lake. Walk on out of here. That's right. Yeah. So, so that's kind of the story that he's known for, but yes. at conference, they chose this other, other unusual story. story showing him being very compliant and very sorrowful for ever having doubted or gone against. So we just thought we are familiar with the story that Landon just told, but we know very little about this political story and very little about the political climate of the time, which, you know, of course, we feel that there's always been since the beginning, a lot of um, interaction (laughs) between the church and the legislature. They almost are hand in glove. In fact, I had to laugh. You know, we planned this podcast for tonight. And just this morning, um, there was an announcement, you know, that some bills had passed protect children, of course, on social media. But the result of that is also that people are up in arms because uh, now no one in Utah can access Pornhub. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, it was meant to protect children, but because now they're requiring dry, driver's license and IDs, Pornhub has said, nope, we don't do that. We're just going to shut down in Utah. So uh, again, I believe that's probably sort of a an influence, perhaps, oh. from the dominant religion here. It still is happening today. And I think, although we can't hear it out loud here in Utah, there's probably <laughs> a silent outcry about the fact that no one can log on. <laughs> <laughs> and people are sharing this message that they're getting where it says you can't. And of course they're going, well, not my screen. I just found this somewhere. I want to show you guys what's <laughs> not my screen. Pornhub so just anyway, lost their biggest market in, yeah, in Utah. Pornhub, well, and statistically we've read those studies that, you know, Utah, I think a lot because of the Marriott hotels and their use of, you know, the porn channels. But anyway, somehow we're going to blend BH Roberts porn, early church politics. This is going to be an episode for the ages. And that's why we brought Ron on because he's going to talk to us all about 
politics and church history, the political manifesto, all these questions that kind of were raised by that conference talk. So that very lengthy introduction, take it away, Ron. <laughs> all right. I have a couple of examples too of, uh, of oh, good, good issues with uh, the politics in Utah. So this was about uh, former Oregon Senator Gordon Smith. Uh, he was in a, a leaked video shown up on Mormon leaks of him explaining uh, the different things that he did to uh, give special favors to the church or he would vote in certain ways that the church would want him to vote. Um, he would be happy to quickly smooth over any visa issues or get uh, people meeting with church leaders so they can get any political connections that they needed. He's the one that said church broke, isn't he? He's the one that said, yeah, I even see it in there. He's the one that coined that phrase. Yeah. Yep. Church broke. Wow. So there's there's a few he had to let's see, I think I was about it there. Um, so yeah, he was very much well, he voted for uh the war in Iraq because he thought mm -hmm. that the Lord wanted him to do that because missionaries would never be allowed in the Arab states unless the rule of law took over there. So he he, he voted that way because he thought that might be able to get missionaries in the Arab countries. Wow. So that's, that's why we went to wow. war. So if you don't think it impacts your life, everybody, uh, it absolutely impacts your life, what these people think. Yeah, yeah, how dangerous is that, that we're taking votes on how we conduct wars against other countries based on the Book of Mormon or uh, a, a prophet in Salt Lake? It, it is scary. So this is uh, Utah Senator Steve Urquhart. Uh, he was explaining what's happening to the lobbying environment back in Utah versus uh, 2017. So he's saying that, uh, let's, see, let's go back down here. The Mormon church is seemingly incapable of finding the front door and walking through it. It doesn't bother lobbying rank and file members or going on record in committee meetings like other political participants too. Instead, it whispers to a few members of Republican leadership and things magically happen. Also, 88% of Utah lawmakers are Mormon compared to about 61% of all state residents. So the legislature is all heavily Mormon. Uh, the leaders just get a few whispers here and there, and then they just do whatever they're supposed to do. So he calls it a, a puppet string lobbying and there's okay. there's no records of it. Nobody keep, keeps track of the lobbying, who's visiting who. It just kind of happens. And then people vote in a certain way. And I've heard that they spend quite a big chunk of change on lobbyists. Because like you said, yeah. not through the front door, more effective yeah. to go through the back door. And, yep. And I, I, I have experience with this. And Ron, you're, uh, I, I think your camera's froze. Either that or you're a great ventriloquist because I've never seen your uh, <laughs> mouth move yet. Um, but uh, he's really good. <laughs> yeah, here here in Utah we have uh, we we have uh, oh what are they called where you where you pick your uh, delegates uh, to go and represent a caucus. A caucus, a caucus. yeah, a caucus. Yeah. And so you go and you vote for you go and you vote for you go in neighborhood groups and you vote for the the people to represent you in your caucus and then they go and they visit with the with the 
candidates and then they make a decision as to who they want to put forward for the candidacy and they pick the nominee for the party and i'll tell you uh number one almost everyone in utah is a republican uh but if you go into the republican caucus uh i've been in there plenty and you're all sitting in there and all of a sudden somebody from the state presidency walks in and immediately a hand goes up i nominate President so-and-so as the nominee, and immediately that person's elected right in to be the, the caucus representative who then goes and picks the delegate. And you you see it every day in Utah, you get to see that. Uh, when, when you start working with the legislature, you start seeing how they, uh, how the, it, it's just an extension of the church. The legislature in Utah is an extension of the church. So there's a long history of the church being involved in politics in Utah. So we're really excited for Ron to kind of tell us the history behind that, because we were just awed as some of the things that he was showing us and that we learned. Because uh, after that conference talk, Rebecca and I started texting, do you know anything about this? What do you know about this? And we started looking it up. And then we said, we better call Ron. We both went, Ron! <laughs> All right, so let me uh, let me sh explain some of the players that are here. So I'll share my screen again. Uh, and there, is that working? Yep. All right, so we have George Q. Cannon, and this is an interesting name because in that last article I was just showing, uh, there were it was talking about a, a lobbyist that the church had employed who was a cannon very likely related to George Q. Um, but George was in the first presidency, very influential person. He was uh, called an apostle, uh, obviously, uh, but he was in the House of Representatives uh, for about 10 years. So he was going to uh, Washington, D.C. and rubbing shoulders with all these politicians and, and making really good connections. Uh, he left in 1882, which was the same year that the Edmonds Act was passed when uh, they outlawed polygamy. So he probably suddenly had to leave the House of Representatives because of that. Um, but uh, the, he was also put forward as a Republican senator uh, later on in his career. He didn't get elected, but uh, the first presidency was wanting to put him in there. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Now, when you say but, House of Representatives, uh the u.s house of representatives because this is before statehood right yeah so he's a, he's a territory territorial representative. representative so he doesn't have a vote but he he gets to represent is that how that worked i something like that i, I don't know a whole lot about how it all worked but uh, he's there uh schmoozing with other people in dc okay. representing representing utah in whatever capacity he's able to do um Let's see. Then we have, let's pardon me while I get my technology. There we go. Frank Cannon. Uh, he is George Cannon's son. Um, he's he's a really interesting person. And I, I really liked him as I was reading all about this this time period. But he is, he's a devout, he's, he's a member of the church, but he's, he's not super devout so he's not like he's not fanatical he's not he doesn't uh believe in polygamy he said 
as he's talking to you, he's sent to DC to to do a lot of lobbying for the church. And they ask him why he doesn't have wives. Like, well, I I didn't get that revelation that I should be a polygamist. <laughs> um, but uh, but he's he he's very devoted to his father George, uh, loves the man and wants to do be wants to show all the respect he can and and be a good son for him. So and he also loves the people in Utah. So he's trying to do the best that he can for them. He's he's going back and forth and trying to uh, negotiate treaties and, and things and very influent and instrumental in getting uh, Utah statehood. Uh, and so he's rewarded with being the first senator in Utah because he's, he's done such a great job getting all of this done. Um, next up, we have uh, Brigham Henry Roberts, good old BH. And uh, he is called to the first presidency of the 70 in 1888. He's part of this constitutional convention. Once Utah is allowed to invited, or Utah's invited to join the country, they have to come up to the constitution first. So he's in there helping to write the constitution, um, along with a couple other. I'm not sure if uh, Frank was in there as well, uh, but I know B. H. Roberts was definitely there. Um, He's later elected to the House of Representatives, so he's, he gets shot down, as we talked about at the beginning, uh, with Joseph F. Smith rebuking him. But uh, later, he, he was able to get permission. Uh, he got elected to the House of Representatives, and there was a big controversy about it because he was a polygamist. So although he was elected, he was denied a seat in the House. So uh, they had to replace him with someone else. Um, in the uh, Reed Smoot hearings that are, happened in the early 1900s, 1903 to 1907-ish, I guess, um, uh, BH was testifying in there. And in there, they're asking him his opinion on polygamy and the manifesto and stuff. And he was a polygamist, and it looked like very likely he was married after uh, 1890. They, they kind of fudged some dates so they're not 100% sure when he married this other woman. Um, but uh, yeah, he the stuff felt I that found the... said he was married after the uh, after that uh, 1890 manifesto. Yeah, he married a doctor, actually, uh, a, a woman that had a had a doctor degree. So yep. um, but he testified that he just felt that the uh, manifesto was just a policy and not a real revelation. So it didn't really count in in his eyes. The the God was the the higher law. Uh, Moses Thatcher is another name that we haven't heard a lot about, um, but he was very tied with B. H. Roberts in the electorates or in the politicking stuff. Uh, he was both a Democrat. Both B. H. Roberts and Moses Thatcher were Democrats, and they were working together in a lot of their things. They're both very intellectual. They were very smart and devoted members. Uh, Moses was an apostle uh, and they're both stumping for the Democrats. They're, and uh, when Joseph F. Smith did the rebuke that they mentioned at the beginning in that talk that uh, by Christensen, um, Christofferson, sorry, uh, he actually rebuked both Moses and B.H. Roberts. B.H. Uh, Roberts 
did not, or B.H. Roberts caved, Moses Thatcher did not, and he ended up leaving the apostleship. So he got booted. Uh, they don't. They don't want to mention him in the in that same talk because they want. I was going to say we don't hear that. Moody. No, no. <laughs> yeah, they didn't. They didn't bring him yeah, up. He yeah, come back. No, and as no. I understand it, BH really tried to talk to him too and said, "You just come on, you you know." But he wouldn't. He wouldn't budge. Yeah, well, we'll I'll cover that a little bit more a little bit later. Um, but he later testified in the Reed Smoot hearings on behalf of the church, and tried to put a good uh, foot forward there for. The, so he he was angry at the apostles and the first presidency uh he kept his apostleship office apparently uh but he was out of the quorum uh, let's see joseph f smith um he was uh, hiram and mary fielding's son um orphaned at age 13 so hiram died in, in martyrdom with joseph uh mary uh, married uh, Heber C. Kimball, that just a couple months later, and they all traveled to Utah. And just a few years after that, Mary dies. He's technically not an orphan because he still uh, has Heber C. Kimball as a dad, but Heber C. has like 30 some odd wives, and he's not a very good job taking care of the ones that he has. Uh, so Joseph considered himself very much an orphan at age 13. And he had a lot of anger about all of this. Uh, he was just mad at the world. He lost both of his parents. And he was angry at the mobs who killed Hiram and Joseph. The vengeance oath and everything was all hard in his mind. Um, they sent him on a mission in, at age 15 to Hawaii just to kind of take the edge off him, hoping that the good mission experience would save him. And it it did, in a way, it, it softened him a bit, he, but he still had uh, an anger problem the rest of his life. Um, I don't know, we're talking the last month or so about uh, an incident where his neighbor's animals were going into uh, Joseph's yard and eating his crops and stuff, and Joseph just got fed up with it, and he pulls out his cane one night and angry, yelling at him, and just beats the crap out of his neighbor with his cane and uh, afterwards turns himself into the police. And after a week or so, the, the problem seems to have gone away, but apparently being an apostle has privileges. Yes. He was an apostle at the time he did that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Evidently doing... sending people on a mission, hoping it makes it makes them better or, or solves some problems seems to have gone clear back to the early days of the church. Then it, it definitely <laughs> did. It's the protocol. And we're thinking of doing an entire Mormonish episode on angry apostles because yes. this is not an isolated incident. Many yeah. of them were involved in these kind of scenarios that you just, I mean, I taught primary for a long time and I don't remember these stories about the prophets <laughs> the in the books. So the story just, of the prophet beating his neighbor. To that's right. Everyone color your picture of Joseph and the cane. Okay. Now, yes. I don't yes. remember that at all. <laughs> Uh, so this, the same year he's called as apostle, he's called into the first presidency, which I found awfully interesting. So he's in the first presidency from 1866 to the time when he dies in 1918. So he, he's in there forever. Uh, he's also a very solid Republican. So he's on the other party of that uh, Moses Thatcher and B.H. Roberts are in. So that will very much 
play into some of the incidents that happen later. And then Wilfred Woodruff, uh, he's the apostle at the time of the uh, manifesto and, and during all this great transition, uh, we're all pretty much familiar with, with Wilfred as the prophet. But he's making a lot of these decisions, also a Republican. The whole first presidency is Republican uh, in the 1890s. Yeah, it sounded to me like everybody was Republican except for Moses Thatcher and and maybe B.H. Roberts. Um, I, I don't know if that's true, but that seemed to be there was like two Democrats and everyone else was Republican. Yeah. All right. So those are my slides that I wanted to fill. And now. So those are the major my, players. My notes here working. All right. So here's the background in the, in the political situation in the 1880s. So um, in 1882, we have the Edmonds Act, and this will make polygamy illegal. So we've got George Buchanan leaving a political office, and he's actually later going into hiding and trying to avoid being caught because they, they really crack down on, on polygamy hard. Um, and they also take away the right to vote for polygamous men and women. So when you is, say they... The, the Edmonds Act, this, this revokes so, that. So the Congress, the, the United yes. States Congress took away the rights to vote if you're a polygamist. Yes. So they, they made uh, polygamy a felony, and so you can't vote if you're a felon. So uh, in 1884, Idaho passed an oath test where... Even if you're a part of an organization that promotes polygamy, you will lose the right to vote. So this was a, a big deal. So even if people who aren't polygamists, if they're Mormon, they lose the right to vote. So basically in Idaho, if you're Mormon, you cannot vote. Yep. That's passed in 1884. And, and I was surprised as I looked at that because I thought there's no way that's constitutional, but the Supreme Court ruled that it was. <laughs> So then 1887 comes, uh, the Edmonds-Tucker Act, and this makes polygamy really, really illegal. Uh, this takes away the right for the church to own property over like $50,000 in value. Uh, it takes, confiscates a lot of their monetary funds, like their, uh, their migration fund was confiscated, and it took away women's right to vote. So Utah actually had women voting in the 1880s. Uh, because the government thought that if they let women vote, then they would uh, return away polygamy. They'd get rid of polygamy just because they thought, well, the women certainly wouldn't like it. That makes them slaves. But the women still voted for polygamy and everything. So, so then in November 1899, uh, polygamy is really being pushed hard, and and they're trying to to stop. They haven't made anything official, but Woodruff has the endowment house demolished in 1899. So this is where all the polygamous marriages were happening. So he's hoping that, hey, if we just destroy this building, people will think we're not really doing polygamy anymore and they'll leave us alone. Um, then in December of 1899, just like a month later, they issue another manifesto. Wilfred Woodruff apparently loves manifesto. We've all heard the the manifesto about polygamy, uh, but I found three different manifestos that he's issued just in my research on this thing. So the 1899 manifesto, 
shoots down a ton of things that Brigham Young taught. So no more blood atonement. We don't believe in that anymore. Uh, the church courts are only for church issues, which hasn't necessarily been the case. The church has been using their church courts to decide a lot of things that uh, the government should really be doing. Um, they insist that there is no political interference by the church or the church leaders and that they have no government hostile temple oaths. So this oath of vengeance uh, that uh, people are swearing, that's that's just uh, that's praying for God to take vengeance. We're not actually doing it ourselves. We're not planning anything. And we're no longer really planning on raising an army and going to take over Missouri and reclaim Zion. Um, so they, they deny all of, all of any, any semblance of them being rebellious to the government. Uh, so th those are the, the key things that are in this manifesto. And then uh, they issue a, a special fast for uh, the Idaho Teth Oath Test. So the Supreme Court's about to rule on this Idaho Oath. And in the so they want everybody to have a special fast on this. And in it, he says... Uh, no weapon that is formed against Zion shall prosper. This will be fulfilled to the very letter. We have never appealed to him in vain, and he has always listened to our supplications whenever we have approached him aright. And this is a, a pretty standard belief that uh, anytime that the government is going to raise their hand against the, the, the one true church, that the they're going to fall, they'll be destroyed. And so they kept expecting the government to be destroyed in all these decades um, so this is this is pretty standard stuff for them to believe in, uh, except it doesn't work. Um, the next month, the uh, test is uh, the oath test is found valid. Supreme Court rules it's great, and the country is planning on a nationwide implementation of this law. So Mormons will lose the vote to write right to vote everywhere. So. Uh, I think they weren't used to uh, having votes where they didn't control the uh, <laughs> outcome with everybody, you know, between Nauvoo and Salt Lake, they'd controlled the political climate for so long. They weren't used yeah. to it not being controlled by them. Exactly. I, I actually got a, this book today, um, uh, Readings in LDS History, which is a, a very faith-promoting view of church history made by uh, BYU professors in the 18, 1950s. They take a lot of selections and think clippings from various manuscripts over the years. But they, they mentioned this, uh, the special fast in uh, 1889, and they don't say what it was for. They just say it was a special fast against the church's enemies. And uh, I.e. the government. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So they, they don't mention what it was or or at the they they do say at the end that the there was no discernible difference in how in what the church's enemies did um but it may have prepared the people's hearts for the changes that had to happen. A very so, nice spin. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So in the so they, they definitely didn't quote that part where I I quoted where no weapon formed against the uh the church will will succeed. Uh, what they really needed to say was this form that 
someone formed against the church worked really, really well. And now we have to change all of our religious structure around polygamy and everything so that we can fit within there, so we can continue to survive as a, a religion. So, Ron, can you clarify the year? Because I, I thought you said 1899, but then I thought you just said 1889. So This is 1889. 89, okay, because that's a big difference. This is before statehood then. Yes, yes. Uh, while they're trying to get statehood or work towards statehood, they yes. have to make these changes. Yeah, I, I apologize. There's, there's a lot of dates here. Hopefully I don't screw it up too much. Um, okay, so we have this a bill coming forward it's going to ruin voting rights for everybody any kind of representation the mormons would have uh so frank cannon is goes to dc sent by his father and his father tells him uh you know woodruff is getting seeking revelation and more knowledge from god on this it looks like polygamy may be ending soon uh, so you can you can tell the senators and everyone there in D.C. that that uh, we're going to be removing polygamy, but it has to be kept a secret. Don't let anyone know that we're thinking of making this change. But just just kind of get them to to hold off and not pass this law, and then when we're not under pressure, we'll be able to make a save face and say we're going to renounce polygamy without having this axe over our neck because if if they got the axe over the neck then they're just they're going to be firm against it uh they'll fight to the to the end but if we kind of take the pressure off they'll they'll be able to kind of reason with them a little better wow the lord really uh is negotiating with this with the congress there isn't he <laughs> yeah. so, i have to say the phrase that comes to mind and this will date me is from the saturday night live the church lady of the 80s how convenient right <laughs> <laughs> <It's> just, ah. <laughs> so frank cannon gets them to stop passing this law and then he goes and visits with uh church leaders and says okay we've done this now you really have to end it and it's it's not a pretty sight there's uh, another fabulous book uh this is under the prophet in utah by frank cannon where he explains in great detail all these meetings that he's in and then he's his, his details and and the storytelling are just fabulous. It's it's a great book, and it just kind of pulls you in there. You can find out how each person's reacting to this news and and what they're saying and, and everything. And it's a fabulous book. I would highly recommend anyone interested in this era or anything along those lines. So this is really incredible that basically, if you're a Mormon, whether you practice polygamy or not, you're about to lose the right to vote. You're trying to get statehood at this time. Frank Cannon is going to the legislature and it back in, in Washington, D.C., and he's saying to them, hey, we're going to get rid of polygamy. Just give us a little bit of time. It's coming. Don't do anything <laughs> rash to force our hand. Lay off a little bit. Give us some time. We'll get rid of polygamy, and then you can bring us in and make us a state uh and and uh, he's playing this whole political card uh all behind the scenes yeah 
Wow. Yeah. So I didn't learn this in Utah history when I was no. in fifth grade. I, no, <laughs> I didn't either. I, I have to say it reminds me a lot of um, a century later where you have the priesthood ban, right? You have the same political pressures. You yep. know, it's a hotbed of people saying you have got to change this or you're going to be sanctioned. You're going to have all these things happen to you. You know, the religion may fall apart and basically all these things in place. And then the church leaders have to desperately plead with the Lord, please give us a revelation to fix this. We have to end this practice. In that case, the priesthood ban hundred years earlier, the the practice of polygamy, please help us. So yes. boy, it's a very interesting scenario and it seems to repeat itself. And I feel like it may repeat itself again. It can very <laughs> well do it again. Yep. So uh, then in June, 1890, Wilfred Woodruff quietly announces end to approving polygamous marriages. It's not a public denouncing or anything, but he's just kind of like, we're not going to approve this anymore. But it's still not enough, so uh, they finally do the big manifesto. Uh, it's officially approved by all the prophets and apostles. We we have uh, Frank Cannon's description of what it's like being in the meeting with the Q15, where he's uh, uh, describing this or what it's first presented to him, and it's, it's a fascinating description of of how everyone's reacting there. So we don't have enough time to go into it, but if you're interested, go back and read that. So. Cannon went back to the first presidency, met with them, and told them, now you got to get a revelation. Yeah, <laughs> because imperative. I've told Congress that we're getting a revelation. <laughs> you need the revelation. So they, they do that, and the church moves on. So this is a, a key role into moving on to statehood. Um, another big step they have to take was uh, get rid of some of the, the political parties they had. So they had a People's Party that all the Mormons were members of. And then they had the liberal party, which was the Gentiles. And anybody who's not a Mormon at this time in Utah is a Gentile. And it's it's interesting that even in the smoot hearings and everything, they're still referring to people that are non-members or they're the Gentiles. Wow. So <laughs> you were, it's like a communist. You When you join the church, you join the party. <laughs> yes. That's right. <laughs> The People's Party, and you vote as a block. Exactly. So that that was a big problem with the with the church because every all the members were part of the People's Party, and they all voted one way. And then there were the non-members in Utah that were trying to have some form of representation in the Liberal Party, and uh, so it, it was the us versus them type of thing, and it was it was a bad arrangement, and they had to end this. So and in, this is different from Utah politics today where we live, Landon and I, because, help me understand it. Yeah, yeah. It, it really isn't much different, but you can certainly see no. where they're being concerned because it's it's yeah. basically uh, a dictatorship. The, yeah. the, the, the guy at the top says, this is how we're going to vote, and everybody's expected to vote that way. Yeah. Or you're your uh, eternal salvation is on the line if you don't vote the way you were told to vote. Yep, yep. So in June of 1891, the People's Party dissolves. And the church had to issue a, a special proclamation that they didn't have any part of it. They, they, don't, they don't deal with politics. It's just completely separate. And the party just decided to dissolve on their own under their own leadership and not the church influence at all. 
<laughs> as um, if anything happened in the Utah Territory without yeah. some kind of go ahead from the upper loop. That's okay. They can stick to that story. That's fine. But then the, the first presidency tells uh, John Henry Smith, who's an apostle, uh, another relative of, of all the other Smiths, uh, that he's assigned the task of starting the Republican Party. So they closed down the People's Party and an apostle and, and also Frank Cannon's involved in starting up the Republican Party. Uh, now, the Republicans have been very much uh, antagonistic towards the Mormons all this time. And the Democrats have been a little more uh, gentle with what they've been going through. So when the People's Party dissolves, all the Mormons want to go to the Democrat Party. Uh, but this would again have the same problem where you have all the Mormons belong to one party and all the Gentiles are another party. So uh, the church is trying to even this out as much as possible, um, but they also want to gain a lot of influence with the Republican Party. Uh, if they can get their enemies to be on their side and kind of like them, then they won't be so antagonistic towards them and they won't try to keep push, uh, passing laws against them. So if we can become friends with the Republicans, maybe the Republicans will help us gain statehood. So uh, this is good for the church and, and kind of a good strategy political-wise, but it sucks if you're B.H. Roberts or Moses Thatcher who are de Democrats and trying to vote your way uh, to what you think is right, and then you have the church leadership kind of sabotaging your every endeavor. So, so it's kind of similar to the early church where the church leaders own this incredible asset of all these people, right? And these potential votes. And we all know in the very early church, they use that, they wield it like a weapon, right? Promising here, promising there. So this is very similar, it sounds like to me. So yeah. um, is there any truth? I had always heard the story of, you know, the members are sitting in sacrament meeting and a leader stands up and draws a line down the middle of the congregation and says, you are Democrats, you are Republicans. I'd always heard that very dramatic story is there any I, truth to that or is that just sort of a figurative how did each person get to decide what party if they all wanted to skew democrat there must have been some influence to say ah we need your family to go republican how did that even work so i've i've heard that story and i've been trying to yeah. find anything that backs it up all the descriptions i have uh don't say anything at all like that yeah so but very dramatic and but, the story talks about husbands and wives were split apart. You know, can you imagine? <laughs> I can't be with you anymore. You're a Republican. <laughs> there may be Talk about may be interfering in people's it. lives. Yeah, yeah, no, I think they're, because otherwise, how would they earmark the people to become which party when they especially needed to arrive at a certain mix, right? A certain right. combination. Because they certainly like, couldn't allow you to choose for yourself. <laughs> oh, well, that never right. works out. Right, Landon, right. you know that. But this is. This is really a defining moment when I think about it, when you just right. said that, because, uh, you know, like you just said, that that the Democratic Party was more friendly towards the way the church was. And when you think about it, you know, the church really was somewhat progressive when you think about the fact that they, you know, polygamy, very uh, sexually, liberally right. oriented versus the party of Lincoln, which, you know, the three vices, what were the vices? Slavery, uh, <laughs> 
polygamy and there was one other vice i think it was they, women that, that yeah probably women's <laughs> anything a woman would do you know <laughs> have a brain there were, or there vote were the or <laughs> vices that they were against which which go completely against you know the church was kind of pro-slavery they were definitely pro-polygamy and and so all of a sudden they go so i think that the that the republican party had an influence on the church Right. bringing them more conservative as the church yep. switched to this Republican, they became more politically conservative. And you still see the results of that today in, in Utah politics and in Mormon politics, uh, where it, they, they probably would have leaned more Democrat had they not had been forced to, to, to join a party or to, to go over to that other side to try to balance the scale a little bit in order to get statehood. Right. It matched what people were actually thinking and doing the, to be a Democrat. But you're right. They mm -hmm. skewed it. And my parents are an example. Only vote Republican. Yep. Absolutely. Party vote, straight ticket. And, you know, of course, if there was ever an L and this is not in Utah, if there was ever an LDS person running, absolutely. Without knowing anything about that person, um, check that box every single time. It was very easy to vote when you were a Mormon with and that of, mindset. And of course, if you're breaking up the parties and you don't want to show that there's any church influence, what better way than to assign a member of the Quorum of the Twelve to form the party? Right, exactly. <laughs> Why and wouldn't so you pick somebody who had nothing to do with church <laughs> leadership to form the party so it didn't look Gentiles. like the church had anything to do with the with the politics? Yeah, yeah. So... Yep, it, it, along with what you guys were saying earlier, uh, Heber J. Grant was telling Mormons not to vote for uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was elected four times. He's like, don't vote for this guy. He's got very communistic policies. We don't want him. And all four times Utah voted for FDR. So he was yeah. furious that they weren't obeying him when he was telling him who to vote for. And uh, so I thought that was an interesting experience. So, but uh, um, so after the Republican Party gains enough power, uh, the Liberal Party, they, they were kind of a state party, and then they would, in the National Convention, they would go to the Republican National Convention and and do all their stuff there. So, But uh, when the Republican Party gained enough power in Utah, uh, the Liberal Party didn't have anywhere, didn't anything to do. So they, they dissolved themselves in December of 1893. Um, so as, as we were talking about earlier about uh, whether you're dividing things down the middle or not, we had situations where in like Logan, where they were very pro-democratic and all voting for them in, in March of 1892, all of a sudden Logan votes Republican. And we're not quite sure why the church issues a, another publication saying, hey, we didn't have anything to do with, uh, with voting uh, with the change in in uh, in Logan, so don't blame us. It just anybody that's using our name to say you should vote Republican, don't listen to them because they they don't they, they don't have permission to use our name. Yeah, but, I think yeah, that's said happens. with a wink, right? The yeah, doctor exactly, test too exactly. much. We're not telling you anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who us? Never. Uh, then a couple months later, Moses Thatcher is stumping for the Democrats, and in the Democratic Territorial Convention, he declares that Jesus would be a Democrat and Lucifer would be a Republican. 
<laughs> I, I like that slogan. I can get on board with that bumper sticker. I would totally yeah. put that on my wagon. <laughs> so yeah, the, uh, the the first presidency was very much not amused because they're trying to establish the Republican Party, and here's an apostle declaring that uh, Jesus would be a Democrat. And uh, again, so we go back to this whole this whole thinking, this whole mindset in, in Utah. You can't be a leader unless you're both church leader and Right. community leader you you can't you have to be an apostle and a senator you can't be a senator you have to be both it's yeah. it they just have to have all the power it's it's the mindset that you have to have all the power you have to have all the control and that god will lead you and that god is leading our senator it, it, it's and and that mindset's still there it's still there I don't think you know we'd never put an apostle in now, uh, but uh, as as the leader, but we certainly will take uh, someone who's come out of politics and make them a, a general authority. But there's a backlash yeah. now. Look at what happened when they asked President Holland to address a state university. I mean, he got COVID and didn't go, but boy, everybody was up on arms over that. So I think there is starting to be a recognition and a backlash, but I feel it's a matter of trust. I know many members, um, including my parents, who won't even patronize services that aren't owned by, you know, oh, he's a nice LDS plumber or he's a nice LDS electrician. They want that trust, that common ground, and especially in their political leaders that are making decisions. They want to make sure their views are and their morals and their values are reflected and you do that by voting someone in just like you or it so does you but it backfires on the national stage as we saw with mitt yes. romney because yes we saw that you know with with the uh first article that you had from the senator uh from oregon uh and what he said and how he was voting you how do you possibly and the bbc uh there was the BBC interview with uh, President Holland, I believe it was, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. he asked the questions yeah. about Mitt Romney and what he did in the temple. And people were all up in arms like, how does that matter? You know, why are you asking those type of questions? That is absolutely important. If it you're matters. running for president of the United States, but you've taken a vow that you will obey the, you know, that you to, to obey the prophet of that church. Right. And that you will put that above any other uh, vow that you've made. Yep. I'm not going to vote for a guy who's made mm -hmm. a vow to, to the Pope that he's going to obey the Pope yep. no matter what. And we saw that with that Oregon senator. He is vowed to serve that leader. And that's not who I'm voting for. That's not I'm putting someone in who makes a decision that's best for me, not that comes from that that's best for that church. And so it backfired on the national stage. And I thought Romney might run again uh, this election cycle with all the moves that he'd made recently. And I'm surprised he hasn't thrown his name in, but maybe he learned the lesson that uh, you can't, uh, a Mormon, uh, and, and Mormon can't run on the national stage. He can't win on the national stage. And at this point, I agree that no Mormon should be the president if they've taken a vow to serve somebody else. Yep. Well, yep. and I feel he wanted to run, perhaps, but maybe he was told he should not hey, because he... so much negative spotlight was shown on the church when Mitt Romney rose to that level of being a candidate. So for all we know, and again, that speaks exactly to your point, someone else controlling those puppet springs told him not a good idea to run Mitt. I mean, I can new... totally see that. 
Is there a new political manifesto that we don't know about? We don't even know what the we don't know. manifesto is yet, though, because Ron hasn't told us. <laughs> because we're talking too much because it's such a fascinating, dang, fascinating topic. I can't help myself. Right, <laughs> I'm so sure our viewers are with us for three hours, right? Three, four, you'll hang easy, in there, right? No. <laughs> we're long form. All right. So in July 1892, uh, there's a letter from the First Presidency telling church leaders that they would be pleased if people voted Republican. So we'd be pleased. We're not yes. telling you how to vote. So, so wink, just, wink, just a, please. Just a couple months ago, they were issuing a letter, issuing a proclamation saying, hey, we're we're not telling people how to vote. We don't do this. And now here's a letter from the first presidency telling them that they would want people to vote Republican. So Moses Thatcher gets a hold of this, or at least someone, someone sees Moses Thatcher with it uh, before it shows up in the Democratic Territorial Committee. So the Democrat Party gets a hold of this. And they're waving this around. Hey, look, see, the church is still influencing things. And they're so, not wrong. <laughs> yes. No, they're they're not, not wrong at all. Yeah, I can see how that would make anyone furious. It's just So the, the, the church is kind of upset again with, with Thatcher, the, with that um, Satan and Jesus political party. And then the, he's tied somehow to maybe leaking this letter from the first presidency. Uh, and then he takes up a political opinion that's different from the first presidency's opinion on sugar tariffs so ah, uh, struck a ah, there's, there's, there's gonna be sugar. there's gonna be a lot of tariffs uh disagreements that this ends up getting uh frank cannon kicked out of the senate later because he's he's voting against tariffs and the church wants tariffs to protect their business interests in the state so and the, the sugar beet industry because they made yeah. huge profits off of the slave labor that they were using in low uh, pay to their sugar beet farmers because they could get the members coming from all these foreign countries to work for low wages, growing sugar beets that they then produced and made huge profits off of. Yeah. That's right. Don't give away the farm, haha, uh -huh. Landon, because we are planning <laughs> an explosive episode on sugar beets with the backyard professor i know you oh, never nice. thought sugar beets could be explosive this will rip the lid off anything you ever thought you knew about <laughs> sugar beets in early utah which i'm sure you've all given a lot of thought to but no it's an absolute fascinating all of this fascinating stuff dies together microcosm little situation yeah it really it's, does it's amazing how it all does yep so the the first presidency puts a gag order on thatcher and forbids apostles to take up any political other other work without the first presidency's approval gag so, order you can't speak on politics yeah <laughs> only so, on youtube we, the, the republicans can speak all they want but you two democrats can't open your mouth that's right <laughs> just you you and you sorry god doesn't want you to weigh in that's exactly oh, right and how could bh roberts be upset by this loving kind act well, of the first presidency remember is, it was called thatcher, a perceived slight yes yeah, so this is thatcher slide. this is thatcher <laughs> of course either of them you perceived or misunderstood or you must have gotten yes. it wrong <laughs> so a couple months later uh bh roberts is actually speaking at the national democratic convention uh the state one i believe but he's he's quoting first presidency messages declaring that they don't interfere in politics so here he is saying, we don't, the, the first presidency of the church isn't controlling me. I'm my own man. So 
We, Did we, he read it like this? The church is not <laughs> controlling me. I am my own man. Was it like that? <laughs> uh, probably. I, I think he believed it. He, I think he's he's trying to. Uh, he, he believes what he's saying. I think Roberts is, is trying to be an honorable man. Right. And and so he's he's saying that hey, the church isn't controlling me. Look, we've already, we've issued these declarations that they don't interfere in politics. So so believe us, I guess. So, uh, but. Uh, this probably makes him really mad later on when these perceived slights do come up and and he's controlled. Well, he's as confused as the rest of us are when the yeah. first presidency tells us, you know, you have the freedom to do this. You have the freedom to choose this. You have the, the freedom to decide for yourself. And then they come and tell you, no, you chose wrong. Uh, however, 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 no, you always a very polite those questions in Sunday school. But as soon as you ask a question, you're escorted out and you have a visit with the state president. You know, Uh, of course, he's confused. Uh, He thinks he has the right because they told him he had the right to do that right right up until he did it. And then he's in trouble for it. Yes. Yep. So next up, we have uh, Frank Cannon. He is campaigning, and he's been trying to build up the Republican Party. So we're in October 1892. The election's coming up, and he's down in St. George campaigning down there. And while he's down there, Joseph F. Smith publishes a pamphlet called Nuggets of Truth. And this pamphlet has a picture of Joseph Smith on the front, Frank Cannon on the back, and tells him all has scriptures and things like that explaining why you should vote for Frank Cannon, and it has a little uh, testimonial from Frank's bishop, letting him know that Frank is a member in good standing. And when Frank finds out about this, he's just he's furious because there's obvious interference from Joseph S. Smith and and church he doesn't want the church's help on this he wants to do this the right way uh bh roberts seeing this as 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 frank cannon trying to to sneak in some kind of church sponsorship with his election uh, but frank is it's, it's interesting reading both accounts from both types of people uh, as, as these kind of things all go along because they all have a different point of view as, as what's going on but uh but that works in Utah. There are so yeah. many campaigns. I can't remember. Oh, I can't remember the names of the candidates in the early 90s. But one was unmarried. Another one had 30 umpteen kids. And the slogans were like, where's his family? You know, they would actually say about the other, which, of course, implies whatever implies he's not, you know, like me, a member with a million kids. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing that those that are very subtle but they definitely have things in their campaigns that let you know they're an active member. And they definitely point out in their opponent things that let you know this is not your kind of person. So, so subtle and, and still you, happening. You absolutely. You get the flyers in the mail and uh-huh. there's the picture of him with his 12 kids and 32 mm-hmm. grandkids all surrounding him so that you know he's a Mormon family. There's no, right. he, he doesn't have to say he's Mormon. Mm-mm. Every Mormon picks up that flyer and says, that's my guy right there. He's Mormon. And then, of course, when you start reading it, he doesn't have to say he's Mormon, but it says 
graduated from BYU with a master's degree in, and that's all it needs to say. You know, he's got first presidency endorsement. He's good to go. Uh, You know, and then you read the other candidate. They moved from, uh, you know, New Hampshire in 1992. That guy is not nope, not your guy. Out of here. <laughs> Where's his family? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's bad. So then, nine days before the election, Joseph F. Smith declares in a Logan sermon that the first presidency has every right to declare or to instruct Mormons in politics. So here he is saying, "Sure, we." One hand, you have the church saying we don't interfere. The other hand. Joseph is saying, hey, we got every right to instruct you guys on how to do politics. Uh, the next month, Frank Cannon loses. He blames church interference, but more than likely, uh, the Republican Party is still just new and there's still more Democrats than Republicans. But he's so wait a minute. Wait, 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 which election was this? This is 1892. Okay, and Frank Cannon loses to? Um, Joseph Roll- he loses to Joseph Rollins, who's actually an apostate. So that's oh. kind of interesting, but he was a Democrat. <laughs> was that on his flyer? <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing it was. Yeah, they didn't have the flyers yet. <laughs> the campaign flyer, apostate. So, well, and then everyone in the congregation at church was singing, who's got the Lord's vote who, right? Yes, right. <laughs> so, oh, it just can't be more unbelievable. So what's interesting about this is this actually helps the church's cause to get, or Utah's cause in getting statehood because the church definitely interfered, but they still lost. So that proved to those in DC that uh, they didn't have complete control over everyone. That sounds so, orchestrated to me. Could it be that duplicitous? That they... I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. So despite themselves, they actually, it was a positive thing that happened for them despite what they tried to do. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And then uh, the next year, March of 1893, uh, the first presidency asks the apostles if it's the presidency's right to dictate a political course, and all the apostles agree that the first presidency has a right to do it. So again, wow. they're publicly saying one thing, and behind the scenes, they're saying something completely different. And yet, every time the government attempts to do anything like institute laws against polygamy, the church says you have no right separation of church and state. Yeah. So it's the state can't get involved with the church, but the church can certainly control the state. It's a one-way yeah. street. Wow. Yeah. Uh, all right. So all of this aside, we now have uh, the road to statehood. We get the goal on site. So in July of 1894, <clears throat> um. Me. I drink. You need to stop smoking there, Ron. I think we all need a drink. I think we need a little anger break. We need to calm down. Landon, you look like you're a little heated. Let's just take a pause here. Our our viewers will bear with us for a minute. We're going to woo, just kind of <clears throat> calm down. Right. That's better. All right. Mm-hmm. So July of 1894, we have the Enabling Act. So it's an invitation <laughs> from the U.S. government for Utah to apply for statehood. So this has several conditions in it. Uh, first, polygamy has to be forever off the table. Um, so you can't suddenly deny polygamy now, then you get statehood, and then, okay, polygamy is all right. So it has to be off the table forever. Uh, there's no union of church and state. And then they also that the church should not dominate the state or interfere with its functions. 
So they want the church completely out of politics and they keep insisting publicly that they are and then behind the scenes, they obviously aren't. Uh, but they're pretending to be out of politics. So, but this is this is the rules. So, if you want to be a state, you have to follow these rules. Um, as a, a bonus, they throw in that they grant legitimacy of every child born of polygamy before 1896. So, I'm not sure how legitimacy and illegitimate children work with legality systems back then, but it was apparently a big thing for them. So, all these children are now legitimate. So in 1895, uh, March, the, several months in March through May, uh, we have this big constitutional convention in Utah where they go through and draft the constitution. And we have people that are involved as uh, B.H. Roberts, I mentioned earlier, Moses Thatcher. Uh, I don't know if uh, Frank, Frank uh, Cannon was in there, um, but the, these were all people that were very much trying to get, decide which laws, what the constitution should look like. Um, B.H. Roberts made a lot of waves here by declaring that women's suffrage should be off the table for now. Maybe it's, maybe it's okay for later, but it's still a, a dicey thing nationwide. So if we include it in this constitution, uh, the national politics may, may deny us based on that. So he's, he's kind of taking a, a pragmatic approach um, but he's also saying that women don't really need to vote because every woman has a husband or a father or a brother or sons that can vote, and then they can vote for the woman's interest. So women don't really need to vote that bad anyway. And that makes so much sense. I mean, I completely understand. Yes, absolute <laughs> sense. <laughs> no, um, but I understand the concept that it would be seen as a liability nationally. And so I understand what he was trying to say, that if the goal is to get statehood, we got to just play by the rules. We got to play with the political landscape, and then later we will revisit it. So, I, I can see that a slavery mm -hmm. argument with the uh, uh -huh. with, yeah. with the forming of the union that uh, yeah. well, let's allow it in the South and move on and deal with it later. Yeah, yeah. So, but his political arguments didn't really win him any favors because he's he's arguing really hard with all these other reasons why women don't need to vote. Uh, so. He got a lot of enemies that way. And the, the first presidency wants women's suffrage. So uh, they're kind of against him for that. Um, also, uh, Thatcher gets in trouble uh, because he's not seeking the first presidency's counsel regarding the Constitutional Convention. So he's in there just doing his own thing instead of doing what the first presidency wants him to do. So he gets chastised for that as well. Again, the rule is they have to separate church and state, and the writing the Constitution is being written by the general authorities of the church. <laughs> oh, oh, tomatoes, tomatoes. Oh, my hair out. <laughs> <clears throat> you may need to lay down, Landon, with a cold compress <laughs> to finish the entire... Just sink <laughs> down there on your couch. You can raise your hand if you want to make a comment. <laughs> it just defies... It was I'm doing the research, I'm infuriating reading through yeah. putting this timeline together. I'm like, wait, wait, no, no, they're contradicting. No. They're doing one thing publicly and another thing uh, behind the scenes. And it just made wow. me furious because it was it was so wow. blatant. I'm reading everybody's journals and I'm seeing what's happening behind the scenes. And I'm seeing the publications by the church and and they do not match up. And and so, the very people who are writing the constitution are now being told 
you can't speak by the by the uh by the prophet and the other members of the quorum of the 12 are telling them you can't speak you have to ask us permission to to speak right. or to run or to do anything in, in your political career you must seek permission from the opposite party in order to do that yeah wow and, and so there, these these uh, roberts and thatcher are getting a lot of mixed messages as well so in like 1892 they kind of agree that they won't run for office because they don't want to be part of this because they know they're church leaders um, but then they're invited into, they're nominated to be in this constitutional convention. And they're like, well, what do we do? We're, we're kind of nominated. People want us to be in here. What do we do? And they're like, okay, you guys can, you guys can do it now. Um, and then uh, I think it's like in 1893 or something, election there. They're like, okay, you can do this now. Uh, and then they get the understanding that well, maybe we should let church leaders be in there because the same qualifications that make somebody good for church service makes them really good at political service. So they're they're kind of given the okay in some cases to like okay, we want you can you can go ahead and, and run for political office. So because, they just admitted that uh, church leadership is political. Well, they're they're saying <laughs> they're saying that they we're we're not controlling these church leaders. We're not telling them what to do, but if we deny the government the right, the access to these very talented people, it will be a detriment to the government. Of course, so, it's a detriment to the government. <laughs> so, so Thatcher and Roberts are, are kind of running independently, so they're not under control of the first presidency. Uh, but they, so they they think that they're this is what they're doing, and they think they have it's been approved and it's okay for them to do this. Um, so after the Constitutional Convention finishes, uh, they go right into campaigning and, and voting to be, uh, Thatcher wants to be a senator for the Democrat Party, and Roberts wants to be a representative for the Democrat Party. So they're, they're running for this election, and they're doing pretty well, except here we come into this general, pre general conference is starting, this general priesthood session. And up stands everyone's favorite, Joseph F. Smith. And he says in front of everybody that Moses Thatcher and B.H. Roberts have not asked for our permission to run for office. And just kind of like, uh, so they're doing this. They don't have, they didn't talk to us. They didn't ask for permission. And implying so, no one should vote for them, yes, right? Yes. Implying that they've broken the code. We all know what that means. Mormons do your duty. Do not vote for these men. This That's incredible. It's a month before elections. This is October. Elections are early November. And then Joseph does this. And Roberts and Thatcher are furious. They call a, a Democrats call a convention to see if they should completely withdraw from the election just because it's all been tampered with. And if they do this, then Utah's statehood thing will all fall apart and so that the consequences are really high and so they they just decide to stick with it and hope for the best but roberts and thatcher both lose uh frank cannon uh, the republicans gain control of the party and since they have control they pick the senators so they pick frank cannon and and so 
this is the slight. I was just trying to find the exact phrase here that I said. Yeah. It was I was it seemed like it was even and, more than and that. It should be it should be noted while you're looking for that, uh, Rebecca, that this was at the time where you didn't vote directly for your senators. Um, you, whoever won whoever won the was in charge of the state legislature, that party picked who yes. would be the state senators uh, for that to represent you. And they actually picked an interesting strategy. Uh, they wanted to do one Mormon senator and one non one Gentile. Oh, so they so they, they didn't they wanted to have the Gentiles with representation. Uh, so that's how they would usually pick their senators. So that that was kind of a progressive approach for picking senators. So that was interesting. But uh, did you find it, Rebecca? I couldn't find it. I think it was on another paper that I like threw on the floor. So unless I can get one of my dogs to go pick it up, I'm not going to be able to find it. But if anybody wants to pull the talk up again, um, it basically just said, you know what? Silly little nothing. That, that is a major the interference. The church stood up and said, they don't have our permission to run. Do your duty. <laughs> do your duty, Mormon. And do you know that if something like that were said today um, in a congregation or higher up, I it would absolutely have the same effect. People would not vote for the yep. person that they said not to vote for. Yep, yep. So it's it's infuriating. So, so they insist that they're still not really interfering, but they this was absolutely meant to interfere. He could have very easily talked to him off to the side and said, hey, we, we need to work out how you want to do this because you guys have responsibilities for the church and then you'd be responsible for running the government as well. So how do we want to do this? But instead, he does it very publicly and it's just absolutely political interference. But so. let me ask you this, and maybe you mentioned it while I was scouring, looking for the paper, but who was running against them? Were those people in a position to be more beneficial to the church? Or were they really just so spiteful that they made sure that candidates that would be to their benefit didn't make it? They they wanted the Republicans to be they in, did. in office. Okay. So okay. Uh, Joseph S. Smith was a very staunch Republican. Right. Uh, John Henry Smith was a Republican. There, Wilfred Woodruff and George Buchanan. Uh, so they they're all they're all in on this. They they all want to be right. leaning towards this. Now, now say the year again this was still territorial this, this is the election that will get utah into the state so so this is the first u.s senator and u.s representative positions yes this is 1895 this is and the, the whole reason they got statehood was that the church wasn't going to interfere and put their guys in <laughs> and that's exactly what they stepped in and did Yes. And it's yes. a great move because, first of all, they get their candidates in that they want, and they also flex their muscle and set an example with these two men and say, mm -mm, nope. And it <laughs> gave a on great board. conference talk for 150 years <laughs> later <laughs> that we're still reeling from. That's right. And discussing in this 17 hour episode. <laughs> so. Yes. So, so BH Roberts loses. Uh, he got 19,666 votes. Uh, the other guy got 20,563. So it was a pretty close election. Uh, he clearly could have won had this not happened. So uh, there's a big fallout over this. Both Thatcher and Roberts are furious. They're uh, 
publishing editorials and they're both like they're, they're newspaper editors and stuff so they have access to the newspapers and everything and so they're they're publishing these things and they're they're railing about the political interference said hey you guys made all these commitments that you weren't going to interfere politically and then you go and do this and so there's a lot of rebuking against the church leadership from the quorum member of the first of the 70 and an apostle and so uh this is not going well and in march of 1896 they have a court of love for bh roberts uh, where they're spending several weeks working with him trying to get him to uh see the try, try to smooth out the feathers and say hey we we weren't trying to interfere we just want you to have permission first and we'll, we'll just just to work out the logistics type of thing just so we can make sure it doesn't interfere with everything and and it, it takes weeks to to really working with Roberts before he finally changes. I, I think um, you, the word you're looking for is grind him down. Yes. Yeah. 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 I picture him in like solitary confinement in a little cell, <laughs> food coming in through the slot of the door. Come on, BH. You know we have your best interests at heart. Sign yeah. the paper. <laughs> Sign the paper. Or and, and I can just see their temple. You know they meet in the temple weekly to do, go over their you know, responsibilities, only the best of feelings should, uh, you know, that's right. And, and they're hating each other's guts over their politics. <laughs> I think that's pretty accurate, even current day, don't you? Yeah, there's well, a lot of fake smiles. Now. I, think. I don't think you can well, be called in unless you're a Republican. So, no. <laughs> so he does finally, it's, it, he finally decides that his testimony and his church service and his fellowship with the brethren are more important than his feelings over being slighted and his political ambitions. Uh, so he does humble himself. He uh, grovels and agrees that, yes, I'll, I'll do whatever you guys want me to do. And then, and this pays off because he's able to run for election just a couple of years later and he wins that election, even though he's a polygamist, so he's not seated. Isn't that the beautiful part of that whole story? He finally wins the election, and then they don't seat him because he's been following the teachings of the prophet, and he's a polygamist, and the Congress says, no way. <laughs> damned if you do, damned if you don't. He's just not going to get there. Yeah. So at the same time, they're trying to work with Thatcher, uh, but he's very sick, and he's living up in Ogden, I think. So he's he's not able to kind of come down to Salt Lake for these, these meetings. And he's, he's very ill for, for months. And by the time he's finally well enough to come in and meet with them, this is October. They've already had the April uh, general conference and the October general conference. And they did not put his name up for voting uh, to, to sustaining vote. So they leave his name off the sustaining vote while they, this issue is being worked out. Uh, so he, he comes in uh, after general conference, ready to, to negotiate and figure out how to do this. And they said, well, it's too late. It's been too long and you're not doing anything. So you're out of the quorum. So he lost the he he lost the election in the sustaining vote in, con in conference. The only person ever to lose a sustaining vote in conference. Well, they, they didn't even put his name up for sustaining. So yeah, in absentia. Yeah. <laughs> so October twenty fourth, eighteen ninety six, they uh, make a an announcement that 
Thatcher's priesthood rights are revoked. He's not able to sp speak in conferences or anything like that. So they, they want him to make any amends before he can gain any authority or positions back. Later, he's makes enough amends that he's able to keep his title as apostle, even though he's not in the quorum. So, Wow. So the most... Uh, the, the person with the most integrity of this entire group, the man who says, you have no right to tell me what my politics are, and stands up and says, I will not be forced to sign something that I do not agree with, is the one who is excommunicated. I guess he's not excommunicated, but he's kicked A out of the soft excommunication. Well yes. And yes. loses his priesthood leadership responsibilities for doing exactly what every single one of us today should do. And which everyone, if they hear this story and you say, who was in the right here? I don't think there's a person, LDS or non-LDS, who looks at this story and says that the church was right here. I, I, I can't see it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's those, but I can't see anyone hearing this story saying that Moses Thatcher was in the wrong for doing what he did. Yep. No, we're and Team yet, Moses Thatcher. Hundreds, hundreds of years later, Team Moses say, Thatcher. Yeah, and yet it's used as a conference talk to say, "Oh, look what a look at how he humbled yeah. himself and came back and obeyed." When anyone who hears this story has to say those two men were wronged. Yeah. In, in this situation, this is not a story of humility. This is a story of humiliation. Yes. Where yes. one leadership took over and humiliated them into submission uh and threatened their eternal salvation with the power right. that they had over and politics that's so uncharacteristic we don't see that especially we, we today. never see that today yeah. <laughs> we never see somebody threatened with you know their rights or participation or families or anything it's yeah. just so unusual where did that come from but but what they uh, describe, i'm being so facetious it's very serious i just it is it, it what they describe what christopherson described was not humility it was humiliation mm -hmm. it was and, humiliation and it needs yeah. to be yeah that that conference talk was was just all wrong and 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 we when we were listening to it it was just like what what's this story something doesn't yeah. sound right here yeah. we need to look this up and so uh yeah we're absolutely glad ron that you were able to dig into that and kind of tell us you know what really happened uh with this story because i think a lot of us uh with prop eight um experienced yeah. a very similar thing yep when the church gets involved in politics, things go bad. <laughs> yeah. So this here's the, the other side of this. This is a political manifesto that was released. And so uh, they wanted B.H. Roberts and, and all the apostles and and everyone to sign this thing, everyone in church leadership. So here's a, here's a couple of excerpts uh, from the political manifesto that they wanted everyone to sign. So they state, we wish to state in the most positive and emphatic language that at no time has there ever been any attempt or even desire on the part of the leading authorities referred to to have the church in any manner encroach upon the rights of the state or to unite in any degree the functions of the one with those of the other. So we don't even have the slightest desire to merge church and state. So just, just get that out of your mind. 
These peculiar oh, circumstances, I know, <laughs> these peculiar circumstances have surrounded the people of Utah. For many years, a majority of them in every portion of the territory belonged to one church, every reputable member of which was entitled to hold and did hold some ecclesiastical office. It is easy to see now to the casual observer that it might appear singular that so many officers of the church were also officers of the state. But while this was in fact the case, the distinction between church and state throughout these years was carefully maintained. Oh. Well, that's not a lie. It was carefully maintained <laughs> to make sure that it was one and the same. Yes, every mayor was the stake president. Every general of the militia was also uh, the, the bishop. Is, and the, wow. These guys are wordsmiths, though. Wow. This is very carefully worded. We already see the use of the weasel wiggle words that we're so used to. Here they are. It just Here sounds great. Yeah. Yep. I just love how it, it may have appeared that way to the casual observer, <laughs> but Silly it wasn't you. really that way. Yeah, Silly we can you. see how it might have appeared that way, but it that was just oh, coincidence. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, finally, on behalf of the church, we are leading officers. We desire again to state to the members and also the public generally that there has not been or is there the remotest desire on our part or on the part of our co-religionists to do anything looking to its union of church and state. So again, we, there's no desire. We have no interest no. in combining these things publicly. Nope. <laughs> well, you can say that as much as you want, <laughs> but your yes. actions speak way louder than these words. This is pretty. And so this manifesto is what they wanted. Did they want everyone to sign this or was just this a declaration of their thoughts and feelings about church and state? So B.H. Roberts and Moses Thatcher, and all the apostles and the presidency of the 70 had to sign this. Okay. Uh, oh, this so, is, so that's, that's very interesting. You said, who did you say had to assign it? All apostles and the first presidency of the 70. So that meant B. Now, H. Roberts. Did you say the 70 or just the presidencies of the 70? The, the presidency of the 70. Which included so, B.H. Roberts. So yes. only the presidency of the 70 <laughs> so that they could get B.H. Roberts to sign yeah. it. So basically, they, they're trying to get those two to sign to say, yeah. nope, there was no interference. Nobody interfered with us. And that's why it was so important those two sign it was to say that, nope, there was no interference from anybody with our campaign. Well, this this was the real clause that made them not want to sign it because they made them, this is an oath that they would have to take. We unanimously agree to and promulgate as a rule that should always be observed in the church and by every leading official thereof, that before accepting any position, political or otherwise, which would interfere with the proper and complete discharge of his ecclesiastical duties, and before accepting a nomination or entering into engagements to perform new duties, said officials should apply the proper authorities and learn from them whether he can, consistently with the obligations already entered into with the church upon assuming his office, take upon himself the added duties and labors and responsibilities of the new position. So if you are to get a new job or get into politics, uh, you need to have approval from your church leaders, the first presidency or the apostles. And this is where they had the biggest problem because the first presidency were all Republican and Moses and BH were Democrats. And the only thing that had to do, the easiest way to keep them out of 
office was just simply deny them approval. And then the Republicans, they can say, oh, yes, you can have office. We agree to let you because you are our party. But since you're a Democrat, uh, we will not let you in. And in the paragraph just before, they said there's we don't want to in any way combine <laughs> the two. But then they say, but you have to ask us if you want to run for office and get our permission before you can run for office. They just said we don't want to combine them. And now they said, but you have to submit to our authority in order to to do it. Yes. Wow. <laughs> the oath is breaking its own oath, yes. basically. It's going to <laughs> So this, this is the big political manifesto, and this is what's so hard for both of them and why they didn't want to sign it and why they fought for so long about any of this. Um, yeah, But as fast as Utah gains statehood, uh, they're already violating all these oaths that they made. So Frank Cannon, he had, had won political office He's in the House of Representatives in, in D.C. He's watching this, the uh, president sign the paperwork saying admitting Utah into the state. So January 4th, 1896, the votes ratified Utah is officially a state. And as he goes home, he gets a telegram that's encrypted from Wilfred Woodruff. And it's like, well, this is strange. We're, we don't need encrypted telegrams anymore because we're not doing anything nefarious. Um, but he's told that Woodruff had a revelation that George Cannon should be the senator. And Frank is already... Wait, made... this is after the manifesto where the church doesn't have any <laughs> influence that they all signed? So so that that's actually a couple months after the, the political manifesto was signed a couple months later. Oh, but after the, this happened, okay. Yeah, so, so I'm rolling back to Frank Cannon's point of view. Okay, um, but they've already the rule of getting into Ute, getting Utah statehood was that they're not doing this. So and, and they've made all these O's publicly and and everyone to all these to anybody that they're not interfering. So Frank packs up his office. He travels to Utah to find out what the heck is going on, and he goes in and meets with the first presidency. His father's there. Wilfred Woodruff tells him, "I've had a revelation." and your father is to be the next senator. So, and Frank's responds like, well, you got the wrong revelation. <laughs> um, wow. Anybody can see that my father would be a great senator. Uh, so that's not that hard of a thing to, to, to figure right. out. The thing you need to figure out is how you're going to get him to be senator. Because I have all of these people already planning to vote for me because we just, I've been doing all this work for the, for the country and for the state. They're all going to vote for me. How are you going to get convince them to vote for my father instead? Because that's what you needed the revelation on. See, that's that just shows their total naivete that they can just think, oh, this is perfect. He's already done some groundwork. He's got all these votes. We'll just now tell everyone. Well, of course, you know that the Mormon prophet had a revelation. So everyone in the country, you need to now be okay that it's the father. They're so naive to yes. even suggest that. That is absolutely absurd. And and he's like, I I my father knows the honor that I'm under. He would not want me to tell all of my constituents to vote for him instead. Yeah. And his father is kind of like, yeah, 
And so he's kind of he's kind of reluctantly being pressured into this things like there's a revelation, but uh, if it doesn't happen, then that's fine. Uh, if it happens spontaneously, but he's he's not going to push Frank to do it. Uh, a couple days later, there Frank's having a big birthday, or not Frank, but uh, George's having a big birthday party, uh, and a lot of the Q15 are there. And Wilfred Woodruff stands up and says, "The Abraham sacrificed his was willing to sacrifice his son for God, uh, and just like that, uh, George needs to sacrifice his son." He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't say why, but he says, like, now we're in a situation where George is needs to sacrifice his son, but it's okay because he has 20 others. Oh. So he's pulling in this Abrahamic test to try to manipulate George and Frank into doing this. And, Returnal the nation is, <laughs> but the nation is not going to go along with this. They don't care what some odd prophet off in the desert has said. This is the national politics. The nation, they, they are so naive yeah. to think that they have control over all this. Well, of course, they think God has control of it. That's what they're thinking. But it's so, utterly ridiculous. This is infuriating. So uh, Frank writes in his this book, um, he says there was a calm assurance, a calm assumption everywhere that the church had power to decide the election if it could be induced to act. And this assumption was a deplorable evidence to me of the willingness of some of our former allies to drag us swiftly to the shame of a broken covenant if only they could profit in purse or politics by our dishonor. So wow. the Republican Party says, okay, yes, we know you've made these oaths uh but you're not we don't really expect you to do this because we we want you to now now that you're in the state you've got political influence and you control this big body of voters and now we want you to influence things so it benefits our political party and so you know what this reminds me of just the whole fact that so many people recognize and understand that that everybody will do exactly what the leaders say politically. It reminds me, Landon, don't you think, of the China thing that just happened. Even China recognizes that Utah can be so manipulated. They can put the leaders in that need to get in place. All you have to do is control one leader and you own this entire voting block. Don't you think it sounds similar even oh, today? It's, ab it's absolutely. And if there's anyone who can understand how controlling one person can control a nation it's china you know and they they picked right up on it that they yeah did. you want to i don't know if anyone's followed it politics. maybe explain it a little bit for a second landon because i think it's super relevant yeah yeah so recently in the paper there was an article uh that you that china because of all the conflict with the national government between the u.s and china china has taken this idea that they want to try to influence local state governments rather than to deal with the uh, with the national government. And so uh, uh, an article came out in Time Magazine, was it? I, I think so. Newsweek, one of those uh, yeah. major news articles uh, was by the AP that said that uh, China has basically chosen Utah as the mm -hmm. place that they're going after to get local, uh, to, to, to influence local politics. And the way they're able to do this is because you've got a church that wants to build temples and do missionary work in China. 
So they're all bending over backwards to get to meet the Chinese uh, leadership. And meanwhile, all they've got to do to get in with Utah politics is get in with the church. If they get in with a couple leaders in the church, they can greatly influence Utah politics. And they realized that. And so they sent a professor over into Weber State and he started talking with others and he got baptized didn't he he joined the church (laughs) he's in the same ward conveniently with the speaker of the house for utah Um, like you can't make this up and it's obviously a trickle up situation because once they influence the local then it trickles up to the national level but i can just see them looking okay not new jersey not washington hey look at this little place here Hmm, looks like every why they're they're like us communist china they all do what one or two people say so yeah it's the same i know it's a little tangent but it just shows that this this information that ron has is extremely relevant because this is how it's always operated and continues to operate and we can be taken advantage of because of that and it can be dangerous on a local on a national level it's extremely dangerous to give a few people great political influence that's extremely it's everything un-american and yet Mm -hmm. we march around in utah talking about how we back the constitution and how american we are and yet we give all the influence to practically you know uh you know five or six guys at the top of the church hierarchy Mm -hmm. influence almost completely our our politics here in utah there's nothing constitutional about it look the the porn hub thing you just talked about yeah the they were back doesn't... to porn, everybody. I told you we would be. Go ahead. <laughs> we, we, we're, we're bringing it back to the end because we're all getting screwed here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> now we've jumped the shark. <laughs> we've jumped the shark. <laughs> but that's that's exactly it. Whether it's an alcohol law, a porn law, whatever the church wants, the church gets because they control the, the political environment in Utah and they pass legislation and they do it under some guise. It's to protect the kids. And when they right. bring it in to protect the kids, all of a sudden, all the adults are out too. Nobody right. can make an, a decision on what they view, what they drink, anything without the church's leadership. So the church wants to, you know, people want to say, why can't you leave the church alone? What? They influence every single thing I do. I can leave the church, but the church continues to influence my life every single day through the politics that they exercise because they have a few guys at the top pulling all the strings in the, in the legislature. Yep. Ooh, there it is. Yep. There and it is. <laughs> bring it back here. We're almost done. I got a few more things to make. Uh, in July of 1896, Abraham Cannon, he's a brother of Frank Cannon and they, he great friends. They love him a lot. Uh, he's an apostle. And he wants to marry his brother, another brother's widow as a polygamous wife. And yes, George Cannon and George says, no, we don't do that anymore. So he goes and asks Joseph F. Smith and Joseph F. Smith is still all gung ho about polygamy. And so he not only approves, but he performs the marriage for him. And then Abraham, they, they go off to California to do the wedding and uh, in the Pacific Ocean, Abraham gets a nasty ear infection that ends up killing him a couple of weeks later. So uh, Frank finds out that his brother's dead and is dead because he went to go marry somebody and that the first marriage happened because Joseph S. Smith approved it and performed it. And he hasn't liked Joseph S. Smith 
up until this point because he keeps interfering with all sorts of things. But now, now he's just really pissed at Joseph, and uh, he doesn't have anything else I think good to say after this. But uh, but they're reneging in all of their promises. They're promising to stay out of politics, which they don't. They promise to end polygamy, which they don't. Uh, they promise uh, to use church uh, church courts for only ecclesiastical things. But uh, then a couple of years later, we have the Reed Smoot hearings. And all of these things are coming back up again because this Abraham polygamy thing came up again. And and uh, the church is putting in another apostle as uh, a politician. Uh, he's not a polygamist this time, so they're hoping that it'll get past him, like, unlike when B.H. Roberts failed. Uh, but they don't want, they, they have all this news coming out that Utah's not following all of their promises that they made. And so they go for years where they have all these uh, people coming in and testifying whether they are or aren't. Uh, the church is very much influencing what people are saying and going in there and, and testifying. Uh, so things are kind of ugly there as well. But what does come, come out, uh, finds out in 1896 that the church appointed six elders to oversee all proposed legislation and give their approval. So the church is still, if you want this approved, okay, this law is okay, this law is not, this law is good, this law is not. So they have a church in charge of choosing which legislation can pass. They basically have veto. Yes. Veto power, right. yeah. Um, there's cases of a woman who, uh, there's a land dispute. One guy thinks that this woman should, she's a widow, she should deed this land over to him. He takes it to the uh, the church leadership, the stake president. They have a court hearing. She's excommunicated because she won't give the land over to this priesthood holder. And until finally, uh, sometime later, she caves. She gives it over to him, and she's allowed back into the church. So <laughs> church hearings are, are should not be used for these things. And then the, uh, in 1906, there's a report from the committee on the Smoot hearings that says, notwithstanding the plain provision of the Constitution of Utah, the proof offered on the investigation demonstrates beyond the possibility of a doubt that the hierarchy at the head of the Mormon Church has, for years past, formed a perfect union between the Mormon Church and the state of Utah, and that the Church, through its head, dominates the affairs of the state and all things, both great and small. So this is a finding of the committee, However, they've all cozied up to the Republican Party. The Republicans have the majority at this time, and the vote goes along party lines, and Utah, or Smoot, is allowed to take his seat because he's a Republican. Wow. <laughs> what a roller coaster. <laughs> when, when it's the... absolutely fascinating just to see it all in that perspective, just lined out, you know, yes. event by event. On the timeline. I, I mean, once you present it like the way you did, Ron, there's just absolutely no doubt. And it continues today. That that was absolutely fascinating and infuriating. <laughs> it, it's absolutely infuriating. Every time I'm reading this, I'm like, dang it, yeah. why don't they just do it? 
<laughs> and you know, you only you synthesized everything and then gave us a very clear, concise, you know, walked us through. I can't even imagine what you must have been throwing books all week. You must have been <laughs> pounding on tables. <laughs> I hope your family's okay. We're sorry, <laughs> but you've so done a great service. <laughs> here's here's another set of books that I've been going through. This isn't even all of them. Oh my but goodness. I've got a biography of Frank Cannon. I've got the uh, the Reed Smoot hearings. Wow. Um, uh, Mormon Mavericks has a great uh, story on Moses Thatcher. Uh, uh, B.H. Roberts' journal didn't cover any of this time period, really, but he wrote an autobiography, so he's got his own uh, speeches and everything that he gave and political speeches he was doing. Uh, so he gave a lot of good information in his autobiography. Um, the essential B.H. Roberts... Uh, this has a letter we'll from that. Roberts to Thatcher, trying to hear after the uh, the whole after Robert Thatcher gets kicked out, uh, Robert sends him a letter trying, hey, just come back to the fold. You can sign the paper. It's not that big of a deal. Just humble yourself and and everything. Like me, like I did. I it's did. easy. And his eyes are glazed over. It's easy. <laughs> just sell your immortal the, soul. Uh. <laughs> this is Mormonism in transition by. Uh, Thomas Alexander, who's actually a relative of mine, uh, he married my grandmother's niece. Interesting. So, uh, but this he covers the the year, the church in the years of like eighteen ninety to nineteen thirty. So a lot of big. There's not a whole lot of church history. A lot of books written on this, but uh, he wrote a really good uh, book on that era. So, well, I think you ought to donate that to the D. Todd Christofferson Library <laughs> so that you can uh, get it. Get, get some more of the facts in the story next time. That's right. <laughs> but why start now? Why start now? That's what I say. So, Landon, do you have any final thoughts? Um, And then I'm going to preview our next foray and what we're going into with Ron. If you want to end on just your final thoughts on this and our thanks to Ron, of course, and then I'll wrap it up with that. So it, it's just, I, I appreciate Ron, all the research you did, yep. because this was, as soon as we heard this, we just knew this was a fascinating story and they really did. I, I really think that the reason they brought this whole thing up was because BH Roberts has become a pretty big name that people point to now saying, B.H. Roberts knew it wasn't true. In his later mm -hmm. life, he was not, he would not really testify to the Book of Mormon. He was only say that I believe in prophets and the and ongoing revelation. And so people have started to say B.H. Roberts knew it wasn't true. He came up with the view of the Hebrews idea and all of that was mm -hmm. all promoted by him. And so they have to point to some reason that B.H. Roberts was was uh distraught and became a more of an apostate. Uh, than that he didn't believe in the Book of Mormon. And this is what they're pointing to. And he had every right to be mad here, but they had to point to something to say, this is why he was uh, was mad. And this is the story they went with. And again, they're gaslighting you. I'm sure he had every right to be mad about this. And every one of us would have agreed he had the right to be mad about it, but this is what they could point to. So uh, I'm glad you were able to show that side and to show what really happened here, but we can all look at it and see that most, everything I read on B.H. Roberts, he was a man of integrity. He stuck with the facts. And there may have been some times he was pressured to sign something he didn't want to, but over and over, he was a thorn in the side of the church because mm -hmm. he had integrity. So thank you for bringing that up. 
Yeah, it's just wonderful. And, and I feel like what they're trying to do by reading or telling the story in conference is replace the story. So eventually, right now we hear B.H. Roberts and you say, oh, that's right. He found the truths and he wouldn't let it go. Now we're replacing the story. He had a problem and yet he eventually acquiesced. He caved and he found his way back. So we're just trying to reinvent his persona because the other persona is problematic, I think. So, yep, this really helps us. And I, I think our viewers and listeners will agree that we learned an a whole lot this time. It was absolutely amazing. So speaking of learning a whole lot, we are going to have Ron back um, fairly quickly here because there's another topic that we're really interested in. And this has kind of come to light uh, with the Daybell Vallow trials that are going on um, right now. Lori Daybell is being tried right now. I'm sure most of our listeners and viewers know what that is all about in Idaho. And then Chad will be tried um, at a later date. But uh, sort of a major part of this that a lot of um, LDS or even post-LDS have not heard of in this trial is this concept of multiple mortalities or plural probations, meaning reincarnation. And this was something that Joseph Smith was very interested in um, anecdotally very early on. And some of his wives anecdotally were interested in with him, including Eliza R. Snow. So we are going to delve into this because Ron, I, I bet one of those stacks of books back there is, is all about this, right? <laughs> but we're going to bring you what we know because, you know, there, there are some things written about it. A lot of it's anecdotal, but we're going to see if we can get to the heart of this because, you know, nobody, most people don't know. You would not think when you hear reincarnation, well, that has nothing to do with Mormonism. Um, it actually has quite a bit to do with some of the early philosophies and it plays right into some of the perceived motivations with the Daybell um, Vallow cases that are going on right now. The idea that, you know, this life, it's okay to rid yourself of the physical body to save your soul for the next life. It's kind of one of the concepts. So anyway, we're ready to go, Ron, whenever you are, we're going to dive in again, and that's going to be amazing. So we'd like to thank Ron for coming on again. And we'd like to thank everybody who stuck with us through this, like I said, roller coaster, a lot of ups and downs, more ranting from Landon. This is becoming a normal occurrence. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. There's a lot of things here to just be impassioned about. And I'm sure that all of you feel the same way. So we'll say goodnight from Mormonish. Um, do not forget to like and subscribe. And please hit the notification bell so that you can be notified when new episodes are out. And thank you once again, everybody. Good night from Mormonish. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.